You are listening to audio from Summit Community Church. You can join us Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. on our YouTube channel at SCC Morganton. Everybody, good morning and welcome to Summit Community Church here on our campus as well as online. When you came in the doors today, there was a very warm and welcoming presence of people at our doors to greet you, tell you welcome. We are glad you're here, glad we could restart today our hospitality first impressions greeting teams to be back at the doors and welcoming you to be here with us. So welcome, glad you're here with us. Today we begin a brand new journey in a new series called Best Sermon Ever. This is called the best sermon ever because it's not because definitely most, definitely not because of me, not because of Summit Community Church, because it is the first sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher of all, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is the Sermon on the Mount, Christ's first message launching his ministry to his disciples and launching a new kingdom ethic for all of us to follow in our lives. Jesus preached this message, setting the stage for his kingdom ethic, the new kingdom in him, of what we're supposed to be and do and act and be like in our lives. You know, the first section of the Sermon on the Mount is called the Beatitudes. Now, quickly, they're called the blessed statements. That word blessed has commonly been translated as happy. I want to clarify, that's not a really good translation of that word. Because happy is based on happiness or happenstance, things that happen in our lives. That means happiness is like this. It comes and goes with life. These are statements of joy, not happiness. Where happiness comes and goes and flows with how life goes out, life will do this, but here comes joy, and it's a constant throughout that whole process. These are statements of how to be joyful. These are statements of how to be flourishing in your life. Now, happiness. If happiness was a key to life, I will tell you this, we are failing. We get a grade of a big fat F. Would you agree? Because here's why. What do we say as a nation? Our constitution says we are people who are about the pursuit of happiness. It's in our constitution. Therefore, we should be very happy people, right? Well, there was a survey done of the countries in the world of how happy they are. Guess where we are as the people who say we pursue happiness? Guess where we rank in the world? We're number 19. We are failing at pursuing happiness. These are not statements of happiness, but of statements of flourishing and joy, how to be joyful in Christ how to translate a lifestyle that is consistent throughout all life. The Beatitudes. This first section is probably the most misunderstood section of Scripture. Because so often, here's what happens. The way we process them, the way we digest or ingest them into our lives is about eight separate conditional blessings. But they're not eight separate conditional blessings. These eight Beatitudes are a cohesive unit. They are tied together with the thread of the gospel woven through them all. 
So these eight Beatitudes have the gospel woven through them all, binding them together in the life of a believer. And it's a process. We'll show you how that follows in just a moment. They are building blocks. The Beatitudes are building blocks of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Matthew, the writer of this gospel, is writing to a Jewish audience. He wanted them to see and us to see that Jesus is the greater Moses. We have an example. In the Old Testament, Moses led a multitude of people, the Israelites. He led them through the wilderness. He goes upon the mountain at Mount Sinai to receive the word of God from meeting with God. What does Moses say? Moses tells the people, wait down there, down here. I'm going up there to meet with God and get God's word and bring it back to you. Moses does. He comes back. He's glowing with the very presence of God, so much so he has to mask himself by not being seen because he's blinding. He had an encounter with God that was unbelievable. He brings the Ten Commandments to the people, says, believe these or else, or follow these or else. That was Moses. Now Jesus, starting his ministry in Matthew's gospel, Jesus leads a multitude of people, his people. He goes, like Moses, to a mountain. The mountain called the Mountain of Beatitudes, formerly known now as that. A mountain with the Sea of Galilee at the base, hillsides on the, on the sides, making it a natural theater heard from the top to the bottom. A natural place, a great place to teach kingdom principles. Jesus doesn't say, wait down there and I'm going up here. He says, come up here with me. Gather around me. Look at me. When you see me, you see God. I'm speaking to you my new kingdom ethic. Jesus begins to teach right here on this mountain about his new kingdom ethic. When you and I read the Sermon on the Mount, if you're like me, you're probably, your conclusion is this. Without the power of God working in my life, I look at it going, there is no way I can ever achieve this. There's no way I can do this. Unattainable. But we've got to realize it is the gospel message of Christ being woven through our lives, that life-changing power of the gospel and the presence of God in our lives through the Holy Spirit that makes it doable. See, these Beatitudes are a progression of the Christian life. It's where Jesus is laying out the gospel. If we miss the gospel in these Beatitudes, it becomes a weight so heavy we cannot bear it. But if we catch the gospel in it, we say, yes, this is doable through Christ working in my life. It's how believers in the kingdom should live. This is not a lesson to teach us of how to get into the kingdom, but it's a lesson of how to live in the kingdom. How does that work to get into the kingdom? How do we live in that kingdom process? We've got to understand this. And as you catch this in the beginning, Matthew 5, the verdict comes before the performance. The verdict comes before the performance. We are declared righteous through Jesus, his shedding of his blood and dying on the cross in our place for our sin. Then we respond in right living out of gratitude for all he has done for us. That is this Sermon on the Mount. Now in your Bible, turn to Matthew 5 with me so you can both hear and follow along this morning. At the beginning of this chapter, Jesus has two concentric circles of people around him. One is the small circle of the disciples. The bigger circle is the, the multitudes, the crowds. And he begins teaching the Beatitudes right here at the beginning of this sermon. Now, the first Beatitude we're looking at, the flourishing, joyful statement is poor in spirit. Look at verse 1. When he saw the crowds, 
He went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying this, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now, right here, poor in spirit does not mean that we're poor by earthly terms, because it's not poverty in a sense of wealth. Poor right here is a different word. There is a, there is a righteous and an unrighteous poverty. There's a righteous and unrighteous wealth. It's not about wealth or lack of wealth. This poor means this. Catch this. This means that you and I, we are a beggar. We realize we are beggars. It's us saying, bless. Jesus said, bless is the person who goes to the point in their lives where they are spiritually bankrupt. It's where you and I realize we have nothing. We are beggars at the feet of Jesus. We get to the place where we realize there's nothing we can do to fix us. I realize there's nothing I can do to fix me. You realize there's nothing you can do to fix you. I am a beggar. You are a beggar. You realize the problem is that you're just not broke. You are broken. You are destitute. You are broken. You look inside and you realize something is missing. You look up and you say, I'm a beggar. I need someone else to do for me what I cannot do for myself. Jesus says, blessed are you when you realize you're a totally helpless sinner in desperate need of a Savior. And the result is you get something in return that you totally don't deserve and will never be able to earn. Why does he say we get? Poor in spirit, you, you will inherit the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. He says you get this in return for being poor in spirit, being so destitute. Now, the second beatitude builds on this is mourning. Look at verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. When you get to a place of poverty in your spirit, you find the ability to mourn. You begin to mourn the process of who you are in God. As you look at God, look at Jesus, see who he is and who you are, you begin to mourn because you realize, I am destitute, I am desperate, I can't do this myself, I need him. You're mourning. When you get to a poverty of spirit, you find you can mourn. Now, this is not about crying. This is not about emotion. This mourning is, is, is a point of grieving. He's saying, blessed are you when at the soul level, you don't just mourn that you got busted, you mourn that you are busted. It goes so much deeper. I've shared before, and I've got to be totally transparent and honest with everybody, like for myself. An example would be getting a speeding ticket. I've done that many times. I don't like that blue light. I like it when it's helping me, not when it's coming to say you've broken the law. And i got to be honest, and you be honest with me, shake your head yes or no, if you've ever done that before, how many of you would say you were sad because you got caught? I'm guilty. Not because I broke the law. I'm sad because I got caught breaking the law. Right here, he says it goes deeper. This morning is us realizing we are it's not the fact that we just got busted. We realize we are busted. It goes so much deeper than just the fact that it's wrong. We are wrong. We're destitute. We mourn this in our lives. We mourn because we're busted. We see God for who He is. 
see ourselves as we are before Him, and as a result, we grieve and we mourn that current condition of where we are. We begin a process that says what breaks the heart of God begins to break our hearts. It's not just a regret resolution scenario. Mourning here is when the Spirit of God convicts us of sin, and we begin to realize how wretched and poor and pitiful and naked we are before the righteousness of God. And we need Him. So we're poor in spirit. We're mourning. This is what Jesus begins to call in this process called the process of regeneration. That process of making us realize how much we need Him, how desperate we are for Him, being regenerated. When you finally arrive at that place, then God begins to send the Holy Spirit into your life to comfort you in that morning. In mourning, you're grieving. God says, I will comfort you. And then here comes another process to this regeneration process taking place. Humility is the next step, the next beatitude. Number three, look at verse five. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Now, in other translations, that word humble is the word meek or meekness. Now, a humble or meek person is a person who says to their king, it's not my will, but your will be done. Have you come to that place in your life where you come to God and say, God, not my will, but your will be done. God, no condition clauses on it. My life is a blank check. Take my life, fill it in as you will. I'm following you with every step and every moment of every day. I'm yours. How many of you have ever come to that place? You see, a humble, meek person is not a weak person, but they're a strong person in Christ. Many times we, we equate weak and meek because they rhyme. It just sounds good. It sounds poetic. You know? Well, meekness is not weakness. And let me clarify this. It's being saved in our brokenness. And our will is now completely and totally surrendered to God and His will. This word for humble and meek in the Greek means this. It's the bit you put into a horse's mouth. And here's where it translates. It is controlled or directed strength. When that bit goes in that horse's mouth, that horse did not cease to be massive and big and strong. It's still as strong as it ever was. It's still as big as it ever has been. Still as forceful as it ever has been, but it transfers control over to its master. It yields the strength and control of its life to its master with that one little bit. Just as strong as ever before, but yielded to the master. To be guided where the master wants it to go. It is controlled and directed strength. See, a humble person, a meek person, takes joy in being in a servant relationship with God and submits to Him quietly and without resistance. This right here is where the word repentance comes into this picture of the Beatitudes. You begin to see who you are. God has revealed who you are before Him. You need Him in your life, and that revelation has come being regenerated, being seen as this. Then repentance comes, where now it comes in where you repent. You turn your life over to Jesus. Turn over the control of your life over to Him. God, here's the reins of my life. Take over. I'm yours. I yield. I submit. 
I surrender. That is the person who is a humble or meek person. The salvation moment in the Beatitudes, the gospel flowing through. And what does he say happens? When you practice humility and meekness, he says, they will inherit the earth. Here's how this all ties in. I've heard this taught wrongly. It says when we are humble, we will reign here in this earth. God transfers. We will not reign here. This is not our home. So what does this mean? Let me give you a glimpse. Jesus says in his word through the writings of his writings to John on the Isle of Patmos in Revelation, what? John says, then I looked up and saw what? A new heaven and a new earth for the old had passed away. And what does he say? Believers will reign with him forever. At this point of repentance, you receive a new heaven and a new earth in him. You reign with him forever, not here. This is not our home. This is where repentance begins that change, that transformation in our lives. We have a new heaven, a new earth that becomes ours through his price he paid for us on the cross for our sin. Now, let's work through the fourth beatitude is this. Here's what transfers after repentance, come to know him. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. Look at verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. How many of you would say this? Hunger and thirst are very real realities in life. Would anybody say that? How many would sit here now, your stomach's growling, you're hungry? Be honest. How many are going to eat in just a little while? How many is going to drink some water, some sweet tea, some good stuff? Yeah, because we get hungry, we get thirsty, do we not? When we're hungry, when we're thirsty, what happens? We eat and we drink, right? And I will promise you this, I've learned this, and uh, I can tell because my pants get tighter. My pants didn't shrink. When I eat, and I eat good, eat a lot, what happens? I grow. And now as I'm getting older, it's not in the best of places. It grows right here. When we feed whatever that hunger is, we grow. Jesus is telling us here, we must be people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What's he telling us? When you hunger and thirst for righteousness, what grows? Righteousness. We must be hungering and thirsting after the same thing because it must be an appetite of ours. It must be a hunger of ours. This is the process that begins called sanctification, becoming holy, becoming more like Christ in our lives. You see what happens at salvation? It says at the moment we're saved, we're saved at one time, past, present, and future. Three in one. We're saved the moment we put faith in Christ. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. We're being saved from the power of sin. And one day we'll be saved from the very presence of sin in His presence. This process of sanctification begins with us hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And this righteousness is not right activity. Let me clarify. It's about right identity. When we declare we're right in identity with God, right living, right activity is a result of right identity. So when we identify right, we will live right. If we're not living right, we're not identifying right. 
That's the way it works. It's process of sanctification. We are made righteous by putting our faith and our hope and our trust totally in Christ. See, right living follows right identity. Righteousness is a part of that process. Jesus says we are blessed when we hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I promise you this, if we hunger and thirst for other things, we'll be totally dissatisfied. If you hunger and thirst for things in this world like money, cars, houses, relationships, you will be totally dissatisfied in this life. The only way to achieve satisfaction is to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Christ takes His righteousness. He imputes or gives it, puts it upon us. Then we, our sin is imputed to Christ on the cross in an exchange process. Then as a process of exchange, we begin living right because of right identity. Right here is a shift in the Beatitudes. A shift takes place. He's taught on repentance, regeneration, sanctification. He now begins to teach us on how we are to treat others differently because of how we have been treated by God. Big shift. So, the fifth beatitude is this. Merciful, or mercy. Verse 7, blessed and merciful, for they will be shown mercy. What's he saying? You and I, if we've got this process, regeneration, repentance, sanctification begins, we begin to see that we have received mercy, therefore we extend mercy. We give mercy because we've been given mercy. We receive mercy, we give mercy, that's what he's talking about. You know, we realize we're not bad people needing to be better. We are dead people with no hope. No hope. Ephesians 2, Paul says this, but God, God steps into picture who is rich in mercy, there's your word, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You're saved by grace. This beatitude is Jesus telling us, you're flourishing and you're joyful when God pours mercy over you so much that it spills out to others around you. And I would ask you, how much has mercy been spilling out over you to others? Has mercy been so full in you that you've been spilling out on others in your life? And here's what my challenge was for myself this week. If I am not giving mercy, if I'm not spilling out mercy, that means I probably don't have it. Because the principle here is God gives it to us and as he gives to us, it fills us up to overflowing. It's going to be a natural overflow to others. So if it's not overflowing, it's not in the tank. It's not here. We must be people who extend mercy to others because we have been given mercy. Now, the next one, how we treat others. The sixth one is this, pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see, they will see God. God is more concerned about our inward character than our outward conduct. Character dictates conduct. Attitude dictates actions. God says, I'm concerned about your heart. I'm concerned about where you are in this. To be pure in heart means three things. When we realize that mercy process, we begin to be pure in heart, and that means this. We have a longing for God's presence. We have a pursuit within us of God's purity. And there is a delight within us in God's pleasure. We identify with those three things in our lives. Longing for God's presence, pursuit of God's purity, delight in God's pleasure. 
That means to be pure in heart. We keep our heart free from the things that grieve God. What grieves God? Impurity and sin. That's what grieves God. He says we keep ourselves separate from this. There are lots of reasons that we need to avoid sin in our lives. Push it away. When it comes, repent. When it comes, push it back because the most powerful one is this. We want to know God. And God says you can't pursue me and tolerate sin. See, sin affects the ability of us to perceive God and know God and hear His voice. What does Jesus say here? What's the promise? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We're not seeing Jesus. If you're not seeing Jesus, that probably means there's something blocking us, shielding us. It's... It's not coming clear. Jesus wants us to look at Him and see Him because He is God. The reason we often can't see God or know His will to have what He wants us to do is because we've filled our hearts with sin. And I want you to grab this statement on the screen. Is this. Purity leads to clarity. When you and I walk in a pure way before our loving, holy, righteous, heavenly Father, Jesus Christ, clarity comes into view. Purity leads to clarity. Jesus says very clearly in His Word, Ezekiel 36, He will take this heart of stone that was in us before we come to Him and give us a brand new heart of flesh that beats only for Him. When you're pure in heart, the promise is you will see God. Are you seeing God? Are you allowing others to see God in you? Purity leads to clarity. Seventh beatitude, peacemaking. Look at verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Now, peacekeeping and peacemaking are two different things. They're different. By nature, we're all traitors, committing treason before a holy God. And there's no peace to be had when you do not know God. We must help people see how they can make peace with God through Christ's shed blood and sacrifice in their place on the cross for their sin by how we live. It must spill over to them. Before coming to Christ, we're all enemies of God. There's strife and division between us and God Himself. And God says, I made peace between you. Now you must be people to make peace for others. We're to be peacemakers that allow people to see the peace we now have in Christ and make an appeal to them to receive the same thing. That's why God tells us in His Word, we are ambassadors for Him. 2 Corinthians 5 says what? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. Now look at verse 18. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to Himself through Christ and given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is a peace right there. It's reconciliation. 19, that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting the trespasses against them, as he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. We have received reconciliation. We are now messengers of reconciliation to others. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Blessed are the peacemakers. We are the ones 
We are the ones that seek to have people understand they need peace in their lives that's found only in Christ. They see it and they hear it from us. If you're a changed person in Christ, let people see the peace in your life. Now, I would clarify something else real quickly before we move on. We stand for truth while we, while we value relationships with others. And why do I have to say that? Sometimes we're seeking to make peace through the gospel, but our lives are so antagonistic. I can get shunned from people about a message of Jesus, and the shunning is because of me and not because of Jesus. I got in the way. My attitudes, my actions got in the way. What does Jesus say? You be poor in spirit. You be meek. You be humble. You be a person who follows me with all this in you. You be a person who is a person who strives to be pure before my eyes. And guess what? Then you seek to make peace with others because your life will speak it. And you'll be a magnet to my peace that they need in their lives. We must be peacemakers at all costs to help people understand I have peace in my life. That peace comes through Christ. Yes, I stand for truth, but I love you with everything in me. I will not compromise, but I stand telling you you need Christ in your life. I love you. Sometimes I can get in the way. Do you ever get in the way of not being that peacemaker? Being a peacemaker means we're willing to do whatever it takes for people to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. That means acting right, living right, doing right, and doing the right things the right way. That's what peacemaking is. Now the eighth, last beatitude is persecution. Man, this is a heavy one. Look at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now here's a clarifying two verses on that one phrase. You are blessed, verse 11, when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Notice this does not say persecution in general. It says when we're persecuted, we're blessed, flourishing, and joyful when persecuted. Why? Two things. Because of righteousness and because of him. If we are persecuted because of righteousness and because of him, he says rejoice in that. You see, some, per some per persecution, as I've said, can happen because of me, and I'm not to rejoice over that. I'd be grieving over that. But if it comes purely because of righteousness, because of Christ, purely, I need to be a person who rejoices in this. I'll be flourishing and joyful living a life that reflects these Beatitudes, as Christ says, invites persecution. What did Jesus say about us? In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. How can we be flourishing and joyful when we're persecuted? Why are we to be joyful and, and rejoicing in persecution? Three reasons he lists here. The reason that joy, joy, rejoicing comes is this. It is evidence that we're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. It's evidence. Number two is a great reward awaits us in heaven. And number three is this. 
we find ourselves in excellent company. We rejoice in persecution by righteousness in Christ because it's evidence we're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. A great reward awaits us in heaven. We find ourselves in excellent company. These are heavy. But when you see the thread of the gospel woven throughout these eight Beatitudes, the process Christ brings them to us, then we find it is doable through Christ and through His enabling, through the Holy Spirit's power in our lives. And it leads to a life of flourishing and joy. Now, as we close, the Beatitudes are so rich and so full of joy and speak to such a flourishing life because in them we have a description of who Jesus is and who we are to become in Him. We see Him as He is. We see what we're to be in Him. Here's what we get. No one sympathized with spiritual beggars more than Jesus. No one grieved over sin and a broken world more than Jesus. No one was more meek and humble in submitting to God's will more than Jesus. No one hungered and thirsted for righteousness more than Jesus. No one showed mercy to others more than Jesus. No one sought peace between God and man, between man and man, more than Jesus. No one suffered unjust persecution and evil against themselves more than Jesus. Here's the takeaway. I look at the Beatitudes and I see Jesus. I look at the Beatitudes and I see who I'm supposed to be in Him. They're not like a checklist of each one independently. They're woven together. So my question is, have you responded to this gospel thread that runs through the Beatitudes? If you've not, I beg of you, do it today. Respond, realizing who you are before a holy God. You need Him. You are broken. You're destitute. And he will come into your life in repentance and change you and remake you in what you need to be. Then sanctification begins and being made holy like Him. If you are a follower of His today, a believer, does this describe you? Where are we with this? As we stand and sing a song of invitation, let God speak and work as only He can in your life. You respond as He speaks. Let's stand and sing and pray first. Father, I pray this morning through the power of your word, the power of your Holy Spirit, you would speak and you would work as only you can. Help us to respond to you the way you lead us to respond. God, we love you. We praise you this day. We ask for your will to be done in our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Summit Community Church, please check out our website at summitchurch.me or on social media on Facebook or Instagram at SCC Morganton.